Today's episode is with Dave Freeze, and this will also be followed up by a video interview continuing on the same subject with 10 persuasion techniques that will be released on September 15th on YouTube. So please check out the YouTube channel at Eric Hunley. You can go to erichunley.com or youtube.com slash erichunley. You can find that video along with my live stream, which is exclusive to YouTube and other great video interviews. Thank you so much. And I give you Dave Freeze. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Dave Freeze. Welcome back. It is really good to be here. I'm I'm always every new year, I'm surprised to still be alive. Oh, come pretty on. much since twelve, since since I was twelve <laughs> years old. And every time I come on your show, I'm like, why is he having me back? But I'm honored and excited. Well that's good to hear. And speaking of that, this is your third appearance. So being ridiculous, I want to go back to your first appearance. And let's talk about the Zygarnik effect. What is that again? So the Zargynic effect is where you do or say, or you alluded to the idea that it might be you show somebody something that triggers curiosity within them so that they're going to pay closer, more focused attention to you. You have their, uh, you have their attention in a way you didn't before. So the Zargynic effect in writing might be where you get to the bottom of a page and it says, and what happened next scared me, dot, dot, dot. So you can't resist. You have to turn that page. Um, okay. The Zargynic effect uh, might be created behaviorally. I think in the example I was maybe explaining in our first episode was uh, if I want to get my kids' attention using the Zargynic effect, I might look around if I'm talking to them in a very conspiratorial way and lean in and go, where's your mom? Because <laughs> I've now triggered enormous curiosity and attention and, and I'm not sure if we talked about this or not, but there's a really good biological reason for that. Where there's things that are out of place or curious, uh, they're not normal. They're different than the usual pattern. In evolution, you know, for most of our lives as humans over, uh, you know, depending on how long you believe that is, uh, millions and millions of years, um, if there was something that was out of place, or something triggering the Zargynic effect, you had to pay attention to it. Because if you didn't, you were likely to get eaten. It probably meant there was danger. So we're Always biologically good. very well trained to pay close attention to that. Okay. And now you rolled it into uh, nested loops as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like that you're going back to the first episode to close a loop about nested loops. But here's <laughs> for people just listening to this one on its own. Uh, a loop is where you start to tell a story. So you're going to use this incredible human desire to hear story. And you start to tell a story, usually as a way of transmitting information or getting someone's attention. And you deliberately stop that story and start to tell another story. So you've created kind of the Zargynic effect there too. Um, a crazy example of it might be that you have uh, something that would be hard to believe and you've got to really lay the groundwork for it. So you say, in the course of our conversation today, I'm going to convince you that aliens uh, came to Earth. That might be hard to take, 
But if you start telling a story about something that's inexplicable, that we just don't understand, and then you stop that story, and you start to talk about evidence of NASA astronauts seeing things they can't explain, then you stop that story. Now people are starting to become interested in these various things that are laying the groundwork for ultimately when you get to the point where you tell them, I have evidence that aliens landed on the planet Earth, and it's more believable because you had their attention, you kept their attention through the Zargynic effect, you started telling a story, you interrupted that story with another one, but the human brain, what likes to hear one, two, three, four, is saying, I heard story one, it wasn't done, he started to tell story two, wait a second, I want the rest of story one. So eventually you come back around to it and close that loop. And then you come back around and close the loop on story two. It's a very sophisticated technique to use consciously and intentionally, but it is something that we use all the time intuitively. Yeah. Isn't that used constantly, almost to an abusive effect in TV shows now? Yes. Where and Jerry is trapped in the room, tied <laughs> against the wall, the hero, and then three days prior. Dot, 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 dot. Exactly what's going on there. Exactly what's going on. But we do do it in human to human communication. And authors, uh, you know, if you want to get good at this, just read James Patterson novels or um, what's Dan Brown. Those are authors that very overtly and effectively use this opening chapters and telling part of the story and then leaving a cliffhanger and then picking the various stories back up. But their books all have stories within stories within stories that they're stopping and and building on. I think an original version of that is the uh, war story. There I was. (laughs) In the Congo. Or wherever it is. Now, the loops. Now, I, I don't know. My mind works in weird ways. Do these loops possibly work in our life too to in a comfort factor that we're going along going along going along going along interrupt what yes uh, i think that's what happens is that s- stories and events interrupt us and we pay attention to them and when we're in the daily routine uh, a huge percentage of what we're doing is being driven by the robot not by conscious design if you ask most people well, how much of your day do you spend consciously making decisions and carefully and intentionally thinking about what's going on around you and how much of your environment are you aware of? Most people will say, oh, 90% of the time I'm aware of what's (laughs) going on. And it's it's the reverse. I mean, we're only really uh, self-aware and aware of our environment and making truly carefully thought out decisions a very tiny percentage of each day. Most of the time we feel a hunger pang or, or thirst, which we sometimes mistake for hunger, and then we go get something to eat or drink. And that whole thing occurs at the robot level without us actually thinking very much about it. Um, our mother or someone calls and says something that triggers a, a uh, an agitation pattern that we're deeply <laughs> since we were two years old. You know, So a lot of that is happening without us consciously thinking about it. Um, So we can, like so many of the things that you and I have talked about, we could use that for good or we could use it for evil. We can, I think you compared me to a Nigerian 
uh, scam emailer in the last episode. <laughs> in the nicest possible way. <laughs> in the way. nicest possible way, yes. And, <laughs> and so we, in the same way, we can use these nested loops to, uh, you know, get our children's attention, our spouse's attention, our partner's attention in a new way, uh, get them to share more with us. Uh, we might know that somebody has a barrier or an aversion to something that would be good for them. We could use these kind of nested loops to get their attention and to overcome um, the sort of resistance that would be there if we just blurted out what we were thinking of rather than telling a few interlaced stories. So there's where we're using it for good. Or you could kind of use it in a, a spammy, manipulative way. And, uh, you know, most people could tell the difference. They, they, they have a different mm -hmm qualitative feel to them. That's a question ahead for you, actually, the way you said that, because you're leading right into what I was thinking. Um, breaking to get a point across. You had mentioned before about, you know, your client, you're settling up the meeting and all that. And you're like, boom, you make a noise of some kind. Now, yeah. every time I hear somebody say you make a noise, they demonstrate a noise, which is so obnoxiously, obviously a distraction noise. Mm -hmm. Is there some sort of a subtlety pattern involved? Like, okay, yeah, I'm seeing you later. Wait, oh, uh, or something <laughs> like that. Is yeah. it a something? I don't know if that's more subtle, but it would seem to be, or does it matter? I think it matters. And I would have calibrated for that. So here's what I mean is some people after spending an hour with them, you know, you're going to have to do something more dramatic. They go deeper into the trance. Uh, or you can see as the meeting's wrapping up that they're already launching off and thinking about the 32 things they have to get to after that. There, I might use something that's a little bit more dramatic. I'm, uh, with other people, all you have to do is lean in or clear your throat. You know, they're still paying attention to what's going on. They haven't shifted into where am I headed next mode yet. And in that case, when I'm talking to them, I might just make a little gesture, like I come here, gesture with my finger and lean in and they lean in and their eyes open up a little bit. So calibration is what distinguishes really superb negotiators from pretty good negotiators or really good communicators and persuaders from pretty good at it. So when people learn these patterns and they learn what to pay attention to, they're going to be better. They're going to be better at negotiating. This is a force multiplier. They're going to be better at, uh, um, you know, interrogating and finding out information. But what really is takes things to the next level is understanding that you don't have to do it the same way with everybody and that each mm. person is having a unique internal experience, but they give you signs of that. They show you that. They're either paying more rapt attention or they're not. They're either leaning in or they're leaning back. They're, eye, they're making eye contact and they're engaged or they're starting to look around for their keys. Um, they they uh, are very you, – you hear people that talk about this at a superficial level say, for example, oh, I saw that he was a visual person because he made a picture. But people mm -hmm. aren't visual or auditory or kinesthetic. They're all of those things. But if we really pay attention, we'll see that they might use one modality or another at important points in decision-making, for example. So somebody might say to me, I still don't quite see what you're saying. If I'm asking them to make a judgment and they start scanning around for pictures and they go, I still don't see 
what you're saying. They've just told me we've got to draw a picture either mentally or on a piece of paper for them so that they now see what I'm saying. Uh, But that, but they may prefer at other times of the conversation to be listening. It's, it's not that there's one kind of person that only uses that one modality. We all use all of them. We all, when I say the word dog, everybody makes a different picture of a dog or hears the sound of a dog or sees the word dog. We all have Mm -hmm. these different internal experiences, but great communicators know that most of it is about watching the other person and carefully listening to what they're saying. It's much more about, now I'm going to feel guilty saying this when I've just been rambling on, but it's much more about asking the right questions and then being very quiet and just listening and observing what's going on. They're going to tell you consciously or not everything you need to know about the next step to do it better. And what else? Exactly. (laughs) Now you're calling back another interview. (laughs) Now, out of curiosity, the deeper... There's another one, by the way. Uh, it's You just used a technique on me. Like if I I want to ask somebody a question... And I don't want them to feel like there's judgment, you know, that they're free to talk about it. I'll say, well, I was just curious or I'm just wondering. No judgment. So you could go on and talk about it. But sorry, I interrupted you using it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how am I going to say something about that? (laughs) But I did interrupt you. You were saying I'm just curious. No worries. Um, (laughs) Accidentally backed into a technique there. I am curious about if someone is deeper in thought. Like you said, there are three steps down the road. Mm-hmm. Are they sometimes even more susceptible to the interrupt because they're deep in the mode? Mm-hmm. I think they are. They're susceptible, but you got to bring them back. And there's um, times, by the way, when I want to snap somebody back and there's times when I want them to drift back in and feel really comfortable. So I might be saying, as you are feeling more and more relaxed now that you're able to, because I want them to come back still feeling that relaxed feeling. Now that you're feeling more and more relaxed, uh, since you're feeling more capable, now you're able to learn even faster and more quickly exactly what it is that we're trying to do here, aren't you? So I just used the tag question there. So I may want to help create a feeling or a mindset for them and snap them back while they still have that sensation. And at other times, I might want them to drift back. So uh, again, I mean, this is a, these are very sophisticated, fine distinctions that you, sure. you'd you see therapists or you'd notice therapists using probably at an unconscious level. But, um, but you're making a good point, which is that everybody's an individual and they're experiencing things in a different way as they go through the conversation with you or go through reading your marketing materials or go through a a meeting with you where you're giving them advice, whatever it might be. Also, I believe when they're deep in that mode is when the hardcore manipulators like uh, say Darren Brown or somebody will get a free cup of coffee or hand a piece of paper instead of a dollar bill. I don't know if you've ever seen Darren Brown's uh, example and Darren Brown, for people that don't know him, is a very skilled user of these techniques. And he's a, uh, a mentalist and 
kind of a mind magician. I, I took my daughter to see Darren Brown when we were in London the last time live. It was fantastic. But he did he does a thing using this very technique that you're talking about, where he just does a couple of things to confuse them in a couple of different levels. He's saying something, behaving very differently than people would expect, and he gets them to give them his their keys, the keys to right. their car. And an astonishingly large percentage of people that he does this with fish the keys out of their pocket and give them to a man they don't know. Which sounds crazy, but that's how deep into it. He's using a very elaborate confusion technique where he's saying things people aren't expecting, making certain kinds of gestures that are incongruent with that, and asking them questions that get them thinking about things that are unrelated to what's going on and happening. Yeah, I've heard you're known to do that uh, call back to interview one with handshakes. I do. I have used the handshake <laughs> induction, which is something very similar, and had people who claim that they are unhypnotizable stand behind me for a half hour, 45 minutes with their arms in the air while I give a talk. Now, I do reward them for that by giving them all sorts of post-hypnotic suggestions that they will have more of the things they want. They will have learned more than everybody else so that when they let their hands drop down just quickly to touch their legs and they have that feeling of their hands touching their legs, that they'll incorporate all of those things that they've learned there now already, haven't they? So I do Perfect. do it though. Perfect segue, the post-hypnotic suggestion. Um, technically, aren't you taking advantage, if you will, of a cognitive bias or bias where somebody will take an action and then come up with a reason behind what they just did. So when you hypnotize somebody, for example, and you say, mm -hmm. take your jacket off and they take it off, you say, Hey, look, you took your jacket. Off. Well, I was hot. I felt like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that that science completely, well, here's what science has clearly demonstrated that there is a phenomena that we call hypnosis in which people behave differently than when they're in a purely conscious state. Um, how much of that is they are uh, playing along and how much of it is something happening even below that level, I don't think is, is clearly understood. But I do know that I've, I've seen and I've also done demonstrations where we have at least temporarily given someone uh, amnesia for the number six and then had them do math and they do it without the number six in a way that would be hard to do at the conscious level so i suspect that some of these states which can be very useful for people to make change in their life in positive ways and to get insight into themselves in ways that they hadn't before um some of those states are really powerful and useful for that so uh yeah i, I would agree that you know, it, uh, generally speaking, I'm not doing stage hypnosis. I learned hypnosis in a therapeutic context where you're mm. helping people to overcome addictions or phobias and things like that, uh, at which it's very effective, by the way. Um, but I, I have seen lots of stage hypnosis demonstrations, and I have performed them kind of as a sideline sometimes when I'm speaking as a way of illustrating the power of these language patterns. And, um, you know, they could be, they could be pretty effective both for the person who's, who's quote going into hypnosis and for the audience watching because the audience's brain doesn't distinguish. In fact, Milton Erickson, who's the father of modern medical hypnosis used to use a technique where he would say, Joan, there you are next to Bob. 
going into a trance. Now that's hmm. phonetically ambiguous. Is Joan next to Bob going into a trance or is Joan next to Bob going into a trance? Who's going into the trance? Who's going into the trance? But if the effectively both of them do. Clever wordplay. On that, is it easier? For example, you mentioned forgetting the number six is kind of a low risk thing because many of us hate math anyway. Yeah. So we really don't take much convincing. Oh, can we forget all the numbers? Say, let's get rid of the whole uh, Arabic alphabet or Arabic uh, number system while we're at it. Is it easier to push on little things or specific things and then other things are much more difficult to manipulate? Well, I, I mean, again, I guess I would make the distinction here. Uh, what a stage hypnos hypnosis demonstration does is what that person's looking for. Uh, the the man or the woman that's kind of running the demonstration is going to take the audience through a series of uh, questions and techniques, and they're going to say, stand up. And then they're going to talk for a while, and a certain number of people will sit down. Well, they're not highly suggestible and not good hypnotic subjects. So the person running that uh -huh. show is going to ignore them. And then they're going to say, well, for the people still standing, by the way, um, raise your right hand. Now lower it. Now raise it up again. And uh, only a certain number of people will do all of those things. So now we have – it will, and they'll say, like, okay, you four, who they saw do everything perfectly so far, stand <laughs> up. I want you to put your hands together and imagine there's glue in there. And uh, try as you may, your brain believes there's glue in there. It's not going to let you pull them apart. And two of the three will just pull them apart, but two of the uh, – or two of the four will pull their hands apart. Two of the four will just will struggle and won't be able to. One of them is probably playing along more than the other, but they're both good subjects for a demonstration of hypnosis to a big audience like that. You know, that's that's more having to do with fun than a therapeutic intervention. Um, but but still, some of those same concepts apply even in therapy. You know, there are a lot of people that don't like being told to raise their hands and let them float there in front of them. So according to the Stanford hypnotizability scale, they might be unhypnotizable. But Milton Erickson wouldn't have said that because he said, well, they might also just not like to hold their hand up. So Milton hmm. wouldn't say go to the beach and lie down and feel the sand and feel the sun on your face because the person might be terrified of the beach. But Milton might say, I don't know where you go to relax and what you think of how you begin to breathe in a different way as you relax more deeply now. I don't know mm -hmm. what you think of and do in your mind, but you do. And you can see that's a, a non-authoritarian, non-directed kind of language pattern. So he doesn't even know, need to know what they're doing, but they're going mm. to do it. Like if I say to your audience, don't think of the color blue, they sure. must think of the color blue to understand me. And if Milton says, I don't know how you breathe when you relax and what you think of and the pictures you make and how your muscles begin to feel different. But they must so do it, all those things. Could empowering them help then? Take me with you to your place where you can relax somewhere that you just enjoy. Mm -hmm. How about we go there now together or, or whatever? So that is, I mean, I understand what you're doing there. But what I think some people would say is they might be terrified of taking you there. They might not want to. Oh, okay. so that would <laughs> interfere. Point. Whereas mm. them going there, not as scary. Okay. Okay. So to, to just a distinction that might matter. It might not. You seemed like you would take me to your secret place. Not that that would be mm. creepy, but, and I would too. I'm, 
I'm not afraid to bring friends along, but some people are. Good point. Never thought of it. That's why I asked the Well, you see, you revealed that by saying what you said. Your your unconscious mind is telling me, hey, I'm not afraid of that. Whereas if you were, if you secretly harbored that fear, you would never have used that as an example with me. So I learn, as I'm talking to people, I'm learning about how they think all the time, and I'm paying attention to that. Which is definitely a good thing. And circling back around again, you mentioned tag, as in let's tag onto that this. And in your past, you were a stand-up comedian? Oh, my. You do you do a frightening like – you dig into the past. Uh, I was. I made uh, – most of my spending money uh, when I was in law school performing in comedy clubs. Yeah. And that made me a better speaker, a better teacher, I think, because you have to get out there and overcome the fear that you're going to make a mistake. You have to get out there and overcome the concern or fear, whatever you want to call it, that you're going to bomb. Um you have to make – if you really want to feel rewarding and like you're successful, you have to make people laugh. Mm. Um, so it's funny. Um, I, I have virtually no fear. I still feel like a little like butterfly in the stomach kind of thing sometimes if I'm speaking to a big convention or conference. And mm. I just know that that's like go time. That's just my signal. I'm ready to go. It doesn't devolve into terror. And I think that comes from – really honing those skills when I was a comedian. I will say that I started working for a very old law firm, very old respected law firm in Philadelphia. It was 206 years old when I started working for them. And I was still um, appearing in comedy clubs and a uh, magazine covered uh, lawyers. It was a legal magazine and they used to do a column on lawyers who are marathoners or lawyers who are mm, okay. triathletes. Or And I was the lawyer who is a comedian. And they came to a couple of comedy clubs that took pictures of me. And there was an embarrassing picture in which I was swinging a microphone out toward the audience and it looked rather risque. And I was, <laughs> called, I was called in uh, and, and told like, we're not really sure this is the image that we want to be portraying. But because I'd spent so much time in the comedy clubs, I was fearless. Well, the comedy, I would think, goes hand in hand because you are trying to control the audience. You're trying to control the rhythm constantly. I mean, comedy is timing. Mm-hmm. And I think you realize, too, this goes to the individuality of the experience. The audience as a group has a sort of feel and a dynamic to it. But mm-hmm. especially in a smaller club, where you could see there's only a hundred people or something like that. You, you could kind of see that different people are reacting differently to certain kinds of routines. And, and, um, and you just want to get to a point, once you get to a point where, you, you know, if you're at 20% of the room laughs, that's tough going. Once you get to mm-hmm. 50%, 55% of the room responding favorably, uh, you, you're going to get the whole room. I mean, the, cause then the group's pressure to, to laugh or to, to cry becomes stronger. It, it develops a kind of a personality of its own, the audience. Did you ever toy with them? I know a oh, lot yeah. of comics I mean, uh, like to <laughs> almost try to piss them off and oh, pull them back. My friend, my friends used to say, we know that you're doing comedy strictly for you. That it, it almost doesn't matter. They, and they were right in one way. I mean, I really did care about the audience. I wanted them to have a good time. 
but it wasn't essential to me. As long as I was having a good time, it was okay. <laughs> and you still carry that now, right? I do. It's a very, it's a very empowering attitude. And I'm guessing that's your life attitude. Yeah. I mean, I care very much about lots of people, uh, but I feel like I serve them best when I'm not dependent Lord. on feeling a certain way from external stimuli all the time. You know, like I get it. Uh, sometimes I'm going to make people happy. Sometimes they're going to be less happy. Some people are built to work with me and I'm work, built to work with them and other people I'm probably not a good match. It did really help me with marketing that I wasn't totally dependent on universal approval because I learned early on that certain people loved the way I did things and certain people, you know, it, they, they do the process, they pay me the money, but they didn't have a great time. So I eventually started to build my marketing to gently repulse people that wouldn't like the way I did it and to really attract the people that would love working with me. So you're right. I mean, I think I've never realized this until now and I'm speaking to you, but I think that comedy and working in clubs and honing that attitude um, really helped me to accelerate how quickly I got to an audience of people that, that I felt like I could really help and they loved the way I was helping them. Okay. And I know a lot of comedians will deliberately almost push out that 10%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, they know that they're irritated, but they've got the rest of the crowd. So they almost yeah. taunt them. Yeah. I just, it's, <laughs> and you can't, you're not going to win them over. So, it's, and you always thrive. We humans need an enemy. <laughs> they, they really thrive in an environment where there's one enemy. Well, let's switch to friends. I've always wanted to know we're third interview, Steve Forbes. Yes. How in the world do you know Steve Forbes? Well, I worked on Steve's presidential campaigns way back in the day when he was running on the platform of the postcard size 1040. So that's going okay, back a long, long time. Flat tax. Flat tax, Steve. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I'm friends. I don't think she would disagree with this. I'm friends with Steve's sister, who I very much enjoy, and she does amazing charitable work in uh, our community. And so, oh, you're referring to, I recently had lunch with Steve. Oh, you did? Well, no, yeah. I, you just, you have quotes from him. And I, I know that ah. you've referred to him a few times. So it's, how do you know him? Yes. So that is, that's how I got to know him. And I just, I had lunch with him in New York just a little bit before our, our conversation here. He was well, in okay. a hilarious uh, mode too. Okay. I had well, cool. Steve, I was, I got to watch too. I brought, uh, uh, as a guest, Jason Pfeffer, who is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and who I've become friendly with. And mm. uh, he and Jason were talking about all sorts of things. Jason has a very interesting podcast, and he – well, at lunch we talked about how he built it. So it was, it was interesting. I'll share all of that with you. Definitely. I'm waiting with bated breath on that. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. Well, you are an awesome oh. interviewer, so you should have a big audience. <laughs> We're working on it. Um, swinging around business or black business ops, which is it? Uh, business black, black ops. ops. Mm. What's that about? You do do your research. You're like the uh, more like the CIA than the NSA. I'm assuming okay. you're not listening in on me when I'm, you know, just walking around the house and things. That's a maybe a big depends on the boards. I have a friend who worked for the NSA for many years, still does. 
And um, I was joking around with him about it. And he didn't even acknowledge it. He just kept staring straight ahead. I think because he knew you were listening. But I was talking to it. Okay, I, I'm going to segue. Apologize, audience, but I was interviewing somebody who was a CIA, mm. and I asked about a place that's nearby me, and he looked at me blankly and said, <laughs> "I have no idea what you're talking about." <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, "Really?" Because I just don't know anything. <laughs> so that that was a nested loop there. We were talking about uh, business black ops, and then we diverted off into how you are like the CIA. Then we told a CIA story. We could come back to the business black ops. Perfect. And so we're here. Bu- business black ops is a group that I run where, um, like, if you like these things, if you like the idea of being more persuasive and being a better negotiator, or, by the way, if you like the idea of being able to escape from handcuffs or a uh, duct tape, if you like the idea of picking locks, these are all things I do. I teach them all of these sorts of skills that they apply in a variety of ways. But I also have... I want to jump into that real quick. Is some of that due to especially international businessmen that you may deal with? And there are very legitimate concerns about kidnapping and things of that sort. Yeah, I think that, that, uh, that people underestimate sometimes the danger it's it's easy to overestimate the danger and scare yourself when there's not present but i think mm-hmm. we live in a society that's been so safe for so long that people have gotten used to being unaware of their surroundings and haven't really cultivated situational awareness uh that that would serve them well so cultivating situational awareness um, is is a useful technique. Like I, I've taught people uh, surveillance detection routes, for example. So I've taught people how to find out if they're being tailed or to lose a tail if they have one. Now, will most of us mm. need that in life? No, most of us won't le- need that in life. But it's a very powerful metaphor for being more aware of our surroundings and understanding that if we have trade secrets, we should treat them like trade secrets. If we have proprietary information, we should treat it like proprietary information. We should gather information on our best clients and customers so we understand them. We should know what our competition is up to. We should have a skunk works that's innovative. We should have our own queue that helps us to develop the weapons that we're going to use or the services and products we're going to provide to our customers, clients, and patients. So I taught people to pick locks and you might say, okay, but you know, there's a lot going on there. When you understand the mechanisms that you use to protect yourself and your property and your intellectual property, and you understand how easily they could be defeated, you might take more care with that. So Business Black Ops, is uh, they, they get a monthly newsletter in which I discuss all manner of crazy topics. And, um, and there's always a strategic piece of the newsletter and a practical piece. So the strategic piece is just getting business people, business owners predominantly, to be thinking about things in a new way. And then the practical piece is what are the management tools, the marketing tools that they can either use depending on where they're working in their business or share with people in their businesses. So we give them a monthly, I call it the intelligence briefing. We also tell them things that are going on in the economy that they might or might not know about. And uh, and then we have a couple of live events each year where we teach particular kinds of skills. And at the one big live event, which takes place in Arizona, I mean, I've had... Uh, 
uh, Marines and uh, military handgun instructors there with each person, taught them how to use a gun safely. This is the 80-20 rule you and I talked about the last time, Pareto's principle. We teach mm-hmm. them how to handle a gun safely. We teach them how to shoot it. They're usually bad. So, But the sure. instructor at each lane is watching and saying, okay, I'm an expert and you're a novice. I'm going to give you three little things to do one at a time. And they teach them the three things that make all the difference and they're shooting like pros. So there again, it's an activity, but it's a metaphor for learning to acquire expertise very quickly and for making distinctions. What are the few things that matter? And most of the things that we do a lot of times don't matter. That could be in our marketing. That could be in our management. That could be in our development of products and services, how we launch them, present them. So business black ops is just a way of, of uh, it's, a, it's a team really of business people uh, that that don't have the common sense not to come back, and they just keep coming back year after year after year. Uh, and they apparently want me monthly because this newsletter, people are devouring it. It's a, it's a lot of fun to write too. Very cool. Now, are is part of what you're trying to do is take them outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. In things that they'd feel awkward. I mean, like a lot of people feel very uncomfortable about handling a pistol. Sure. Yeah. And and it's true. We even make that overt. We say, look, you know, your comfort zone is this big. Maybe it's a six inch sphere. If you just, if you take them out of their comfort zone by an inch or two, you've in a spherical sense, you've expanded the world in which they operate comfortably now by, by a great deal. So we are constantly trying to take them out of their comfort zone in three dimensions rather than just in two. And, um, and it is, it was very uncomfortable. I had a uh, woman CEO there who said, listen, I know people like guns. Uh, I don't like guns and um, I'll come with you. I'll watch, but I don't want to handle them. And then I talked to her a little bit while she was watching people. And I said, yeah, it's kind of important that you understand gun safety, even if you like don't like guns, what if you found one or what if a child found one and pointed out to you, you need to know how to handle it safely. So she conceded that and flash forward about 15 minutes later, she's with a handsome Marine shooting and she shouted at me to get her more ammo. She, <laughs> of course. She used a very <laughs> naughty phrase to tell me to do it too. So, Which of course you responded to even quicker. Instantaneously, yeah, it got my attention right away. And the point just was she radically expanded what she thought she was capable of and the area in which she could, which was already pretty big, the areas where, where she felt comfortable and not intimidated working and comfortable and uh, capable, you know, working. So yes, it, there's, there's always a metaphor to these things. And yes, they're almost always designed to take people out of their comfort zone for just the reasons that, you're saying. That's why I kind of brought all this up because I, I see this as a pattern in life and like what you're describing will help everybody if we can get outside our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, other factors when you talked about it, knowing your enemy, things like that. I think that people could take value of having having better situ- uh, situational awareness inside of a freaking board meeting. Mm-hmm. If you're in a meeting with a bunch of other people, what are they really saying? Because everybody's spouting off words, but there's messages that are underlying. And if you can pick up on the on the musicality underneath and the undercurrents, you don't even have to 
hear the words. You can almost close your ears and just watch the people. And you can see things coming. Like if you're laid off in two weeks, you can, mm-hmm. you can smell it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right that most of us are, uh, when we're in these group meetings, we're planning what we're going to say when we see the other person stop talking rather than listening to what they're saying, rather than watching their body posture and their facial expression and listening to the tempo of their voice, as well as the words they're saying. We miss out on so much of that because we're not there. We're thinking about when that person's done, I'm going to say this. And when we train ourselves to pay more attention to what's going on around us, which some of these exercises I was describing do, we really start to enhance that. And you you used another technique technique on me. You know, when somebody's finished talking and you simply listen, and then when they're done, leave the silence, they'll keep going a lot of times or prompt it by saying, and what else? Or I, I think I understand. Can you describe that for me one more time? Because you'll get more nuance this time. So you're right that especially in group meetings, but even in one-on-one, a lot of times we're not even there. We're not even paying attention to what's going on. So we're not even getting the superficial level, much less the second and third and fourth levels down. Great point. And I was thinking, I guess I sense some of that. I often am the lowest ranking person in any room. So maybe that has served me to the advantage that I know my job is to shut up. So I spend a whole lot of time observing everybody else in the room. And I guess I have a piece of advice that maybe everybody should worry less about what they're saying and more about observing. Well, that is, if there was one piece of advice that any great negotiator, interrogator, communicator, persuader, influencer would would say was the key to that mindset, it's that one. Because, and I think I've said this before in our conversations, what most people are never there so they don't see it and most people assume that the words the person is or is using mean the same thing to them and so they don't go any deeper and they never ask for that and they don't realize that typically the first run at communication is at best inaccurate and probably a lie the person that's talking to you is lying to themselves about what they're thinking or at least they haven't fully explored it. You haven't gotten to the meat of what really matters to them without going further. Hence the effectiveness of that technique and what else, what else do I need to know? Can you explain that to me again? But that's not even deliberate, is it? No. Oh no. They don't even, I guess if you think that a lie is deliberately withholding the truth or saying something affirmatively inaccurate, then maybe it's not a lie because most people aren't intentionally doing it. It's just happening unintentionally. They just, when when I ask someone a question, they're going to give me the superficial answer, the one they were probably prepared to give me. But they will go further if I ask them to go further. And they're going to give me lots of cues and information if I simply ask for it. And I pay attention to what they're saying and I give them room to be clear and to explain things to me. Okay. And you have another technique. Is there... Another question. Is there another question? Or any other question? Oh, is there any other question you need to ask me now, that technique? Sure. Well, I mean, I I have a bunch of them here for folks. Uh, You know, like the six-word question, for example. Well, let me, I alluded to something earlier. I said, oh, that's a force multiplier. 
you know, all these skills really are. So I should, before I give you any more of them, meaning to the audience, I should explain what I mean by a force multiplier. In the military, uh, night vision is a very powerful force multiplier. So if you have a person armed with night vision and they can engage the enemy at night, that's considered to be a five times force multiplier. If you... And force multipliers are synergistic. So if you carefully select special forces tier one operators and you train them to be better than everybody else and you give them night vision, those are cumulatively going to give you a truly superior warrior. That And if you train them to be a cohesive members of a highly effective team armed with night vision, that's going to be a 50 or 100 time force multiplier. So force multipliers, I think of in business, as being tools and techniques and skills that when we hone them or technologies that when we use them, make us individually way more powerful than we were without them. And and communication skills and persuasion skills and the skills of influence that we've been talking about over these three times fall into that category. They make us better at everything we do. I mean, if you're really a, a, a superb listener and communicator and you're very able to understand that persuasion requires you to find out what the other person needs out of this as does negotiation and you know some of the big strategic mindsets as well as the techniques and tactics of the people that are great at this you're going to be a better father or parent you're going to be a better uh, spouse or partner or lover you're going to be a better business partner you're going to be a better manager of people you're going to be a better negotiator and get better deals and make deals that are more rewarding to everybody involved you're just better at everything and so on that know, note yeah. persuader and negotiator mm-hmm. aren't they of a piece are they of a piece what as in mean? of one thing oh of one really, thing you're not negotiating without persuading aren't you well, I suppose it's possible. I, I, I mean, I guess it depends on how we define them. Um, it, I think of a persuader as a, an effective persuader as somebody who finds out what is really clear about what their own needs are and is really clear about what the other person needs and and tries to find the common areas. So that is a, a valuable skill in negotiation. Um, I think this, the skills of each inform the other so that, okay. So you negotiate to find what each side wants and then work on the persuasion. Yeah. So a lot of times, here's what I mean by persuasion in the, in the course of negotiation, we may find out that the other side needs these three things. Mm -hmm. It may take some persuasion or education to get them to realize what you want, the three things you want are not incompatible with those three things. And if you could find three things you want, that are no pain for them or in some way synergistically enhance the three things they want, you're going to come to a deal. So I, I think they're both this, they have uh, uh, similar goals and they use skills that are compatible with one another. But I, I think of them and define them in separate ways. And I also, I think maybe we've talked about this before, but I'm very careful. I think persuasion is hard work. But being an, a true influencer and earning the, in, the ability to influence others um, is, is, is the sort of end result of really good persuasion skills. So you persuade somebody and you give them good information and you give them a good result and you do that a couple of times, they're going to trust you so implicitly 
that when they want something, they're going to start to turn to you to give them answers and to give them guidance and to give them systems and methodologies for achieving what they want. And they're going to credit you to a certain extent with helping them to have it or at least be a catalyst. So now you're influential. influential. You're not doing the hard work of persuading them each time. They're coming to you. So I make a distinction between being influential, being persuasive, and being a good negotiator. But you're right. They are all linked. And the skills that make you better at each of those are are real force multipliers. I mean, being a better negotiator is going to mean that every aspect of your life is better because you're finding ways to get what you want and give other people things that they want as well. And when you do that over and over again, you build these relationships that are powerful and long-lasting and ultimately just create better outcomes more automatically without even having to build trust because now you've shown this person that they can trust you two or three or four times and they assume that that trust is going to be there. And of course there's a magic bullet, right? <laughs> yeah, there's no magic bullet. Sure, be trustworthy. Well, be genuine. Well, that's <laughs> that really goes a long way. That is true. Uh, there's, if you let that infuse everything you do, but, but everybody, here's the thing is everybody, um, develops trust situationally in different ways. Sure. Uh, the good news is that most of us have, a, a, a fairly small number of tests that we use in different contexts so that developing trust. So you could say again, like, oh, you're going to use techniques to develop trust. Well, Yeah. You are. And the sooner you figure out what the other person's tests for trust are in this context, as long as you're motivated not to deceive them, but to honestly deliver what it is that you're offering, then building trust faster is better. And it facilitates things. I have, and I could share it for you. Do you do show notes? I'm not sure. Uh, mediocre ones. I will, if you have links, I could put them in there. I'll give you Absolutely. an access to, access to a document that I did on trust and trust building in different contexts that I think your audience might find help, like helpful, uh, because it is, as you say, trust is the thing that it that infuses all of these things and makes you better at all of them. We so just, what you're saying is these are techniques to help you engage with a person to make them feel comfortable enough to to give you trust initially. Yep. Then it's your job to earn that trust or to prove that they were correct. Prove they were correct in giving it to you. Yeah. And then keep reinforcing it. And as long as you keep reinforcing that trust, that turns into influence mm-hmm. because you're now trustworthy. Right. Where we're not exactly. You've you've become trustworthy. You don't have to prove it every time in the hardest possible ways. So I, I, I have a series of techniques here. The six word question is one of them. One of the things that we talked about with the six word question is, well, I'll, I could demonstrate it. Now, uh, you and I could see one another. Not everybody can, so I'm going to describe what I'm doing as I go. Uh, okay. If I wanted my kids, for example, to do something that I knew was good for them and that would make their life better, mm-hmm. and I, um, I asked them, I'm sure everybody that's listening that's a parent has had this experience where you ask the kids to do something, ride their bike without training wheels, or take a lesson of a musical instrument, or get outside and get more exercise, or play a sport, something that would be good for them. Sure. But I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you ask them to do it, they go, I can't, I can't do that, which is usually motivated by fear. And most parents 
think that they're being supportive when they say, yes, you can. And they say it just like that. They go, yes, you can. Of course you can. You can do it. But what they're really doing is is just pure argumentation. They, mm. they suggested something. The kid said no. They're now telling the kid the kid's wrong. And then, of course, they could do it. Well, this causes a child or an adult in this situation to go inside and figure out all the reasons they're right and you're wrong. That is defeating mm. the very thing you're trying to do here, which is to be persuasive and get them to do something that would be good for them. So, kind of like, don't think of the color blue. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't think of the color blue. They're going to think of it. So what I would do, I used to argue with the kids all the time by saying, yes, you can. Of course you can do it. Um, but as I became more skilled at these things, I would have the following kind of conversation instead. I'd say, well, look, I, I know you feel like you can. So let me just break that down for a second. I know you feel like you can't is seems to the kid to be an acknowledgement of what they're feeling, right? But they mm -hmm. said, I can't, which is an absolute. I say, ah, I know, I know you feel like you can't yet. So I added a presupposition on there. I know like you feel like you can't yet. So when I've added that presupposition, it presupposes that at some point they'll be able to. Right. So internally, they must make a representation of themselves being able to do it. So I, I appeared to agree with them, but I secretly implanted a thought in their mind that they might be able to. And so then, so I know you feel like you can't yet. Then I look around. I'm going to trigger the Zargynic effect, something you were asking about earlier. <laughs> and I lean in and I go, I, I'm just, first, where's your mom? Now, if you say that to a kid, if a dad says to a kid, where's your mom? They know that what's going to come next will be superb. So you have triggered <laughs> curiosity and focused attention. Now, that would be weird if you were at work using this technique and you leaned in and said, Susie, where's your mom? That they, She would probably call the police or HR. But the way you would do it at work is you would just change your tone of voice a little bit and say what I say to the kids. I'm just curious or I'm just wondering because mm -hmm. now there's no judgment. And we talked a little bit about this before. We're, when we say we're just curious or just wondering, that's all they are, we are. We're not going to judge what they have to say. So it puts the kid's response to the question you're about to ask, the six-word question, into a totally different context. So we've done a couple of things. We said, I know you feel like you can't. So we've broken through. We've introduced the idea that they might be able to, yet further introduces the idea that they might be able to. So we've hit that twice now. We've triggered the zygynic effect by leaning in or whispering or changing our tone of voice. We've dissipated the... Uh, problem of judgment by saying, I'm just curious. And then I asked the question. And if you Google Dave Freeze in the six word question, you'll see video of me doing this. I just say, I'm just curious, or I'm just wondering what would happen if you did, or what would happen if you could? Now, at this point, they must imagine themselves doing it. And, and often, mm. like if you're asking a teenager this, they're not going to give you the satisfaction of saying, well, then I'd have a great time and what the heck, I'm going to do it. But if you ask a little kid this, they will often go, well, I would have a great time. I'm going to go do it now. Um, <laughs> if at work, this works miracles. I mean, I've had somebody, I've said to somebody, can we do these three things by next Tuesday? Oh, no, that would be impossible. I can't do that. And I'll say, well, I know you feel like you can't yet, but I am just curious. What would have to change in order for you to feel completely sure and certain that you could get those done by next Thursday? Well, I would need somebody to take the phones and I'd need somebody to do this transcription. So we just went from an absolute it's impossible 
to two things within my power to make them happen and it's all done. And notice how I asked that question. What would need to change or what would you need in order to feel completely sure and certain that you could accomplish it by Tuesday or Wednesday? So you're that, also leaning into Cialdini's commitment on that. I am. I am triggering a little bit of a micro commitment there because all I'm asking them to do is to tell me what would have to change in order for them to feel that way. So now they're putting forth that mm-hmm. this would have to happen, this would have to happen. So in a sense, they're committing themselves down that path. In, in fact, it's even better than that, that you're exactly correct. But I'm asking them what would have to happen in order for them to feel that way. And you'll see them sort of do a little search and they'll tell you. And they will have triggered that feeling within themselves that it could be done, that they would feel completely sure and certain that it could be done. So it's a that's a powerful technique. Well, this has been another great hour. Oh, I have a feeling I may have to <laughs> lay down a... Um, so what would it take... Or what would it look like if you were to come on unstructured again? And I would look in the air and I would say, I will, (laughs) well, I'll, I'll whet your appetite. One of the things you're really going to love about having me on is that I'll share 10 more techniques. Now here's the thing about the technique. One of the things you're really going to love implies that there are many more things you're going to love. So we're laying the foundation for you to feel that love or excitement or name the word that you want them to feel. Perfect. And thanks so much again. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hey, I'm Studio Steve. And I'm Veronica. And we we are are the the Podcasters. We have a podcast all about podcasting. We cover everything related to the craft. How to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast, Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website, podsoundschool.com. We are dedicated to provide our podskis with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous and always fun. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming.